0: You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to BridgesNashville.com. Hey Bridges family, greetings from National Community Church in Washington DC. My name is Heather Zempel. I'm the discipleship pastor here at NCC, and we love your pastor Curtis and Sarah and Nora and Moses, and we are praying for you and cheering you on. So grateful for the opportunity to be with you today, but man, I look forward to the time I can be with you again in person. All right, in 82 AD, Emperor Domitian built the Arch of Titus in Rome to commemorate his older brother's victories, most notably the siege of Jerusalem 12 years earlier in 70 AD. Now, on the arch is one of the most vivid depictions we have of the artifacts of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. You can clearly see the Roman conquerors carrying away the menorah. The arch captured a moment when it seemed as though the glory of Rome had overthrown and replaced the glory of the God of Israel. Or so thought the emperor. In reality, the glory of God had already left the temple a few decades earlier and found a new home. Already across the Roman Empire, small bands of people, Jews, Gentiles, Roman soldiers, slaves, merchants, men, women were meeting in homes following the teachings of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. Now, 300 years later, that fledgling religion would become a movement that would impact the entire empire. Now, if you were Emperor Domitian in 82 AD, the idea that 300 years later, The tables would completely turn. The idea that the God who once resided in the destroyed temple of Jerusalem would be the God of the Roman Empire would be inconceivable, illogical, incomprehensible, impossible. But that's exactly what happened. 300 years after that arch was erected to declare the glory of Rome, the pagan gods of Rome would be replaced with the God of the Jewish temple, and the images of the Roman Caesars would be replaced by images of Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, or in the Greek, my ecclesia, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The Greek word ekklesia means an assembly, a gathering, a group of people committed to a common mission. It was often used to describe political factions or a group of people working towards change. In our English Bibles, the word was translated into a derivation of the German word Kirk, which means house of the Lord. And that's exactly how many of us have understood the church it's a building. It's an event. It's something you go to. You know, growing up, I learned the, the here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. But that's not exactly what Jesus was envisioning. A building was not what Jesus had in mind. An ecclesia, an assembly, a movement, a people committed to one another on mission to bring his kingdom to earth. That's what Jesus had in mind. And the empire that sought to extinguish it came to embrace it. Little confession now before we go any further. Look, I love the church. I've always loved the church. While other kids my age, normal kids, were playing house in school, I was playing church. But I recognize that many of you didn't always love the church. Some of you still don't love the church. Maybe you even walked away at some point and you probably walked away for good reasons. If you walked away from church because it was judgmental, because it was argumentative, because it confused politics and theology, then I want to apologize to you today. You probably walked away from a church that Jesus never intended My prayer is that we would rediscover the original design and get back to the core mission of bringing heaven to earth. And we invite you to reconsider joining that movement and all its mess and all its goodness. Let's take a look at Acts 2 is our source code. In Acts 2 verse 42, we read, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's three outcomes. The early church experienced three realities. The Holy Spirit was moving. No one was in need, and their numbers grew They were in awe of the signs and wonders that were happening. People were getting healed. People were speaking in tongues. And other people were understanding the gospel in their own language. Miracles were a normative part of their experience. And not just miracles in their gatherings together, but miracles out in the marketplace and in the public square. They believed and lived in the reality that the same spirit that had raised Christ from the dead was alive in them. Another thing that we see is that no one was in need. They were all together. They held everything in common. They sold possessions and gave to those who were in need. Everyone was a contributor. You know, what got the attention of the Roman Empire was not the belief system of the Christians. It was the way they cared for one another. Emperor Julian lamented, It is a scandal that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He couldn't stand the notion that anything would be considered more noble or good or benevolent than the Roman Empire. Finally, it says that their numbers were growing. This early church were a people that recognized they existed primarily for those who were not yet apart. Is this the reality we live in? Are we a spirit-filled people? Is the supernatural a natural part of our everyday lives? Are we a contributing people or a consuming people? Do we come to church for what we can get out of it or what we can bring to it? And are we a growing people? Are we an inviting people? Are we a movement following the work of Jesus in our world? Or are we simply a monument to commemorate a God who did something, someplace, sometime, a long time ago? Let's reverse engineer for a moment to see how they got there. If we back up to the beginning of the passage, we read all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. And to prayer. They were committed to four things. They gave themselves to four things the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, meals together, which included the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. The apostles' teaching. Now, keep in mind at this point, there was no New Testament, not even the letters from Paul. They had the Old Testament and the teachings of the apostles the ones who had been with Jesus for three years that were eyewitnesses to say, this is what he told us. This is what he taught us. This is what he showed us. And this is what he commanded us. This is how he taught us to pray. This is what he told us about who God is and what he's like. This is what he told us about who we should be. You're the light of the world. Take up your cross and follow me. Go make disciples. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor the way you want to show God that you love him. Every time you read the words of Jesus, ask yourself two questions. One, what did Jesus say here? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? Now, when you're reading the non-read letters, letter uh, parts of scripture, you're reading words that the Holy Spirit inspired others to say. So ask some similar questions. One, what is the Holy Spirit revealing to me in this verse? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? See, See, the goal ultimately is not Bible reading. The goal is obedience to Jesus, are we devoted to, obedient to the teachings of Jesus? Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship, to community. Now, to understand this, when I think we have to go back to a moment in Jesus' life, right after he's chosen his 12 disciples, and he's in the beginning phases of popularity. In Mark 3:31, we read this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. This was shocking. Uh, This was scandalous. Uh, Imagine for a moment being Mary. I I mean, she had put her life and reputation on the line to give birth to that guy. That feels a little bit like a smack in the face. I mean, she had to be thinking, I'm right here. I can hear you. But in that moment, Jesus redefines family. He expands it. He makes the claim that anyone, is his fo- anyone who is his follower is family. It was no longer just biological family. It was spiritual family. I'm eternally grateful for my family. They gave me a strong spiritual heritage. They paved the way for me, and, and they gave me strong shoulders to stand on. I love my marriage. God's used it to shape my character and bring me joy. I love my kid and God has used her to shape my character and bring me joy and shape my character a little bit more. But I'm also incredibly grateful for my spiritual family, the wisdom of spiritual fathers and mothers, the encouragement of spiritual brothers and sisters, and the joy of spiritual sons and daughters. The early church leaned on one another and learned from one another. They shared testimonies to strengthen one another and encourage one another. They lived out the new command of Jesus, love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. They were intergenerational, where the passion of the younger generation met the wisdom of the older generation. Let me talk to older married people for a minute because you're the ones I think I can give some practical application to. What if you invited some more people around your table regularly? Older people, younger people, single people. What if when COVID is over, you invited a young single person to go on vacation with you and your family? Here's what's great. This isn't something we have to add on to our lives. It's just sharing the life you already live by inviting people into it. Are we devoted to one another as family? Next, they were devoted to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. I think we need to restore a robust theology of the table. You know, when we think of the book of Leviticus, we don't associate the word party with that book. But did you know that in the book of Leviticus, God commanded multiple different feasts and holidays for the Israelites? He taught them how to celebrate. Have you ever noticed how often God did something significant or revealed something about himself around a table? I think about Abraham being visited by the three guests and then being given a promise of a son. I think about the Passover meal, the Jewish version of a 4th of July barbecue. It was a remembrance of God's freedom. The feeding of the 5,000 revealing the divinity of Jesus. At the last supper with his disciples, Jesus gave them a picture of the redemption in his crucifixion. On the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, Jesus, Jesus preached about how the Messiah is revealed in the Old Testament prophets. But the two with him didn't realize who he was until he blessed the meal around the table. I'm convinced that the table should be one of the most common places for people to experience the presence and power and provisions and promises of God. The writer specifically mentions the Lord's Supper. It's a recreation of the Last Supper in which Jesus gives the bread and says, This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he passed around the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. For the early church, this was not a ritual that was practiced every few weeks or in my tradition on the fifth Sunday of the month. Rather, it permeated their everyday life gatherings. When they gathered together for meals, they also had communion with one another. Every meal was an opportunity to remember and give thanks for what Jesus did on the cross. Are we devoted to making our tables holy ground and our meals holy moments? Finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was not an afterthought, it was the first thought. They prayed about everything. Someone was sick, they prayed. Someone was in trouble, they prayed. Someone was in prison, they prayed. Someone needs help, someone is scared, they prayed. Ultimately, it's about pursuing the presence of Jesus and listening to Jesus in every situation. So three outcomes. The Holy Spirit moving, the people serving and thriving, and the church growing. Four practices, learning and walking in obedience, living in community as family, gathering around the table to celebrate and to remember, and prayer. In 82 AD, the Roman emperor built a monument to the glory of Rome. Less than 300 years later, Rome would be filled with the worship of the God of Jerusalem. It would be filled with art and architecture to honor a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. The, em- the empire came to worship what it had once tried to wipe out. How did that happen? A man predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. You know, we often make the centerpiece of our faith, the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is critically important to our theology because in it is the power of salvation and redemption. It changes our destiny. But the crucifixion of Jesus is not what changed history. Thousands of Jewish men were executed on Roman crosses. His crucifixion was not unique. But only one Jewish man walked out of a tomb. The miracle of the story is that somewhere in the ancient city of Jerusalem, Jesus walked out of a grave, and that changed everything. The earliest followers of Jesus didn't gather around a shared set of religious beliefs or a standard of moral practice. They gathered because of the resurrection. They were gripped by the message of Jesus and galvanized by the Holy Spirit and the church, against all odds, swept across the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Bridges, Nashville... Jesus is building his church. His heart beats for your city. His heart beats for your community. And he is still building his church. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Blessings and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.